It is a massive day in British politics. The leader of the opposition has stood up and said that if the Durham police find me, I will resign. As we'll explain, I think it's a real possibility that they will, and he will have to. It's also, though, a very important day in my life and in the life of Tisky Sauer. That's because after a two-month hiatus, I am joined once again by Ash Sarkar. Ash, welcome back. I've missed you. I've missed you. My life has been bleak, loveless, ghastly, without your chiseled features beaming into my eyeballs every Monday. You know, Barnaby was good. We're going to get him on loads more, but I've just, you just make me laugh, Ash. You make me, oh, delighted to have you back. How has your two months away been? It was great. Lots of progress <laughs> on the book, but obviously I have been missing being in the mix with you guys. And when we are in the banter timeline, such as now, when the only person who might resign from Partygate is Keir Starmer, I'm glad to be on the show. We are also going to be talking about the final results from the local elections. They've obviously come in since we last spoke to you on Friday, talking a little bit about the history of Northern Ireland um, and the cost of living crisis, that ongoing story, which is really more important than anything else when it comes to British politics right now. The Durham police investigation into potential lockdown rule breaking by Keir Starmer has put the Labour leader in a very difficult position. Starmer has already stated that fines applied to Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak mean they should resign. So should he make the same commitment himself? That was the question everyone has been asking since Friday. And today we got our answer. I believe in honour, integrity and the principle that those who make the laws must follow them. And I believe that politicians who undermine that principle undermine trust in politics, undermine our democracy, and undermine Britain. I'm absolutely clear that no laws were broken. They were followed at all times. I simply had something to eat while working late in the evening, as any politician would do days before an election. But if the police decide to issue me with a fixed penalty notice, I would, of course, do the right thing and step down. Ash Kirstarmer may have just been simply eating a meal while working in the evening, but it could prove to be pretty consequential, couldn't it? Do you think this pledge by Kirstarmer was the right one? Well, he's chosen to deal with this scandal by raising the stakes. And I think that if he's hoping that this will at least reduce the heat in the meantime during the police investigation, he's wrong. You've already got the Sky News helicopter hovering around Southside like it's the last days of the Vietnam War. You've got people speculating on who his successor might be. So strictly from a communication strategy perspective, this doesn't seem to have neutralized the issue, quite the opposite. It has heated the whole thing up. In terms of whether or not this turns out to be the right choice, this all hinges on whether or not the police find that he breached the rules and whether or not he tries to wriggle out on a technicality. I think, and this was a tweet that I saw from someone else, what he's done is he's brought a knife to a gunfight and decided to stab himself with it, or at least threatened to stab himself with it and gone, this is what integrity is. I don't think that it's going to get the hounds of British political media off of his trail by any stretch of the imagination. 
I personally think that probably on the whole, this was a smart move in the sense that it was the only move he had, he could make because of the position that he had put himself in. I think if he had got fined and then he didn't resign, those clips of him saying, Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, they must resign now they have been fined, would just make him an object of national ridicule that would be impossible to move beyond. I, I, I really disagree. I think there was another thing that he could have done. He could have gone on the front foot and on the offensive. And he could have said, this is the Daily Mail jumping in to protect a lame duck conservative leader. This whole thing is a complete joke. Durham police should know better than to fold to political pressure. And I don't accept this, not one bit. And I think in some ways that would have been closer to the truth. This is obviously confected in the sense that it is a naked attempt to discredit him, regardless of whether or not there's truth in the fact that this particular curry and beer event was a breach of the rules. He could have gone on the front foot about it, but he hasn't. He's promised to step on a rake in front of the whole country if Durham police, who have been roundly criticised by both the Conservatives and the Conservative sympathising news media, decide to take a look at the event and go, no, actually, Sunshine, you did do something wrong. I mean, was it any more politically motivated than, say, I mean, because we, we've said this many a time on, on Tisky Sour, but what Keir Starmer is alleged to have done is clearly not on a level of what Boris Johnson did. Boris Johnson engaged uh, a pattern of behaviour in Downing Street, which was offensive to the victims of, of COVID-19. It was clearly just the systematic breaching of rules in a way which is impossible to justify. It, it's very difficult to say, oh, that was, that was a mistake and it was an honest one. Rishi Sunak is a slightly different, I think actually a very different proposition because he was someone who went to a meeting, there was a birthday cake, he got fined by the police for that because it was, you know, he, he was in breach of lockdown rules but in a way which doesn't, to me, seem any more egregious or offensive than what Keir Starmer appears to, to have found himself doing in, in Durham. So for me, it would be very, very difficult for Keir Starmer to say, look, I've been fined, but this wasn't that egregious an action. Um, the police shouldn't really be doing these retrospective fines anyway, especially considering this is being driven by political pressures. So while obviously it's regrettable what happened, I am going to stay in my post. I don't think he can say that once he's said Rishi Sunak, the mere fact of him being fined for attending that, that birthday cake event. I think if he hadn't said what he said today, which is if I'm fined, I will stand down, it would have just become completely untenable. And as I say, he would be a joke. You disagree, though? I disagree on the basis that I think he could have done something different in terms of being more assertive in taking on the mail and taking on the sun and not try to kowtow to them. And also, I think this is something which he could have done differently over the entire period that he's been Labour leader. He is a politician who loves to dance to the lobby's tune. So he's somebody, if something is, you know, big on the news desks and it's big amongst Westminster's lobby journalists, that's the thing he'll go big on. And that's part of the reason why he went so hard on Partygate. He doesn't have a policy offering. In fact, him and people around him think that if you present something which is drastically different from the Conservatives, that you're going to alienate the public rather than win them over. So instead, it's a focus on the aesthetics and the rhetoric of his political identity. So I'm honest and I'm competent and I've got integrity. Now, the problem with that is that that's a really fragile identity to have for yourself. Because what the Conservatives are, are specialists in if you don't personally smell of roses, they'll make sure that everyone else is covered in shit. It's a way of discrediting everyone else so you don't actually have to improve yourself whatsoever. And Keir Starmer, I think, was always vulnerable to that because he's someone who slavishly follows the news agenda 
rather than trying to make any attempt to set his own, which meant that on charges of hypocrisy, he'd be particularly vulnerable. And when something like this came around, which was inevitable, if it wasn't this, it was going to be something else. I absolutely agree that, you know, in retrospect, clearly mistakes were made by Kisdama. If he had kept his his argument a bit more targeted, you know, what Boris Johnson has done is incredibly egregious. He should clearly resign because he's done X, Y, Z. Then even if he got a fine, he could say, look, this is, you know, no reasonable person. Yes, it's it's regrettable that I got fined, but no reasonable person could could look at what happened in Durham and look at what Boris Johnson did in Downing Street and say those two things are in any way equivalent. And I think people would have accepted that. I would have accepted that. But as I say, because because he made this demand of Rishi Sunak when it was you know, a, a very similar situation, I, I think it will be, well, it would have been difficult for him. So if, obviously, if he'd made a different call back then, maybe you know, stayed a bit more focused on, on the cost of living crisis instead of everyone must follow the rules. Obviously, I agree when it comes to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, it was egregious what he did, but accidentally breaking a rule as Rishi Sunak did, less egregious. Of course, he's objectionable for many other reasons. Now, moving on, obviously, Starmer's pledge will only be truly consequential if he actually is fined. And when it comes to that police investigation, much will depend on how they interpret this operation note, and which was leaked to the mail on Sunday. It shows that Keir's curry and beer was pre-planned, not off the cuff. And we can also see it was meant to last one hour and 20 minutes. So quite a while, reasonable amount of time for a meal. Perhaps most significantly what we can see from this operational note, no work was scheduled for after the meal. Durham police might also rely on eyewitnesses. One of those spoke to the Sunday Times and said this. It has been claimed that Starmer worked during the curry and then after the curry. None of those two things happened. He did not go back to work, to the best of my knowledge. The eyewitness also made these allegations about Mary Foy. That's the local MP in attendance at the meal. So they said, Mary Foy and her staff were not working. And I have not got a problem telling that to the police. They were just getting pissed. They were just there for a jolly. It's not something that I am prepared to defend. They just thought it was pretty cool to hang out with the leader and deputy leader of the Labour Party. I wouldn't say they were hammered, but they were definitely a little bit tipsy by the end. Well, I just feel sorry for Mary Foy for thinking that it's pretty cool to hang out with Keir Starmer. Angela Rayner, to be fair, she seems like a laugh. So I can, I can understand if that were the real motivation. For Starmer to be cleared, of course, Labour will have to demonstrate to Durham police that his beer and curry were reasonably necessary for work purposes. Those allegations would appear to counter that. If they were getting tipsy, if, if they didn't work afterwards, it doesn't look like it was reasonably necessary for work. But of course, as you'll know, neither me nor Ash are legal experts. I'm not going to be able to tell you categorically whether or not he broke the law. Jolion Morm is a legal expert, though. He tweeted this opinion. Here's what the law was at the time. Subject to exceptions, you couldn't participate in a gathering of more than two people indoors. And he shares what were the, uh, the laws at the time. Participation in gatherings indoors. No person may participate in a gathering in the step two area, which consists of two or more people and takes place indoors. So that obviously applied here. And there's a sub paragraph. This will not apply if any of the exceptions set out in paragraphs four or five apply. Then Jolion Morm shows us um, what are those relevant exceptions. So what would be the exceptions that would allow that indoor gathering to have taken place? They were set out in law as this. Exception three, 
is that the gathering is reasonably necessary for work purposes or for the provision of voluntary or charitable services. So you could see how Labour will be making an argument based on that exception. There was also an exception on campaigning. So exception 20, obviously we're not showing you all of them, we're showing you the relevant ones. Exception 20 is that the gathering consists of no more than two people, at least one of whom is a campaigner. So the campaigning exception is not going to be particularly helpful for Keir Starmer. There were more than two people there. And according to Jolly O'Mormon, I think this is significant, that campaigning clause could actively work against Keir Starmer. That's because, as Morm explains, lawyers will use the campaigning clause as evidence of what the law considered to be reasonably necessary for campaigning work. And as you can see here, it was pretty strict. They only thought it was acceptable for two people to meet inside. Morm goes on to say in the thread, I'd understand a, quote, gathering to be a coming together. So if you are working in a room with e.g. six people and you pause for food, which you have together, that's only one gathering, and depending on what you were doing in the office, may well be reasonably necessary for work. But if you were working in a room with six people and you go somewhere else to have dinner, that may well be a new gathering. And you would also need to assess the purpose of the second gathering. Was that second gathering reasonably necessary for work purposes? Whether it will be a new gathering is a sensitive question. Did you go to a new building? Did someone new join you? And the question whether that new gathering was reasonably necessary for work purposes will also be a fact-sensitive question. What did you do in that new gathering? Was it work or was it social? Could you have done it alone or did you need to do it together? So it sounds like a potentially new person, Mary Foy, arrived specifically for that dinner. And the eyewitness account, which makes it sound like things got pretty social, right? So, so that, again, would count against them. And Morm does conclude, although I need to know more about the facts, I really wouldn't want to be placing a bet that Starmer hasn't broken the law. I think this is a serious matter for him and for Labour. Now, I should be clear, there are other prominent lawyers who've taken the opposite position. You can see Adam Wagner has put out Fred suggesting that Keir Starmer shouldn't you know, be found to have broken the law. As I say, me and you, Ash, we're not legal experts. We're probably not going to be able to give a concrete answer here. But you know, what's your instinctive read? What do you think the chances are here that Keir Starmer is going to get found guilty, is going to get that fine, and therefore have to resign? Like you say, I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not going to try and answer this as a legal question. Instead, I'm going to try and answer this as a political one. Part of the intention on the part of Keir Starmer, and this is something which has been confirmed by anonymous allies of the Labour leader to a newspaper, is that by betting his leadership on whether or not he gets a fixed penalty notice is that it forces the police to back down from saying, yes, you broke the rules and here's the punishment for it. Because police are obviously quite aware of not wanting to be seen to meddle in politics. Now, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but they don't want to be seen doing that. It's a highly sensitive issue. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why certain punches got pulled around the Dominic Cummings infamous jaunt to Durham and Barnard Castle. And I think it's also why it took an awful lot of pressure from the public and from the media for the Metropolitan Police to get their arse in gear. Because their instincts are to just not get too involved in politics, at least in the sense of, you know, decapitating a national party leader. There are other ways in which they obviously do get involved in politics. So I think that that's one thing which might be in Keir Starmer's favour, which is by loading up the stakes, you discourage Durham police from coming out with anything too embarrassing. But then again, the pressure can work the other way. Because if you've got the conservative 
newspaper industrial complex going into overdrive going, well, the prime minister was issued with a fixed penalty notice. Why aren't you treating the leader of the opposition in the same way? That's another form of political pressure where non-action or being seen to pull punches is also seen as a form of political manipulation. And those two things are really going to be battling it out against one another. And I think there's also a third thing, and this is particularly important for us to talk about, which is it is only people who are wealthy and powerful, who are national leaders like Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, who get the luxury of a police force going through the potential rule breach with a fine tooth comb, looking at the exemptions and measuring very carefully whether or not the situation applies. For most ordinary people who are issued with fixed penalty notices, that was not the case. And you can read some of the letters where people are arguing for mitigating circumstances, such as I just came off my shift at the supermarket and we were dog tired and we hung out in a car for a little bit. I'm really sorry, but my mental health is dreadful. I'll never do it again. I can't possibly afford to pay the fine. You know, those were examples of people being punished for breaches of the rules, even though, you know, there could be said to be some kind of leeway. Another good example is, of course, the way in which the rules were interpreted by the Metropolitan Police to close down the Sarah Everard vigil. Now, ultimately, court found that it had been an unlawful way to police that vigil, but the instincts of the police were just to go in, all guns are blazing, brutalize women who were coming together to mourn a woman who had been murdered by, by one of the Metropolitan Police's very own colleagues. It is a luxury of doubt and skepticism and reading the rules in a sensitive in a sensitive light, that is a luxury which is only enjoyed by elites in society and certainly not ordinary people. Yeah, I think that's always super important to remember. Although I suppose in this in this particular example, you know, Kirstan will feel like because they are going after him because he's a politician, which is what the Metropolitan Police said. They didn't want to investigate the Conservatives. It was only once public pressure got so large that they said the reason we're doing this retrospective investigation, which we haven't been generally doing, is because it puts the public's confidence in the rule of law at threat if we do not investigate. So they said they investigated specifically for that reason. Obviously, it's now opened a whole new can of worms, which obviously is very serious. It is also a little bit entertaining to watch. It's a bit thick of it that, that Keir Starmer might have to resign. The leader of the opposition might have to resign for, as he says, eating, eating some food in the evening. Julian PD tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour, Keir Starmer giving a whole new meaning to political suicide. I haven't seen anything as explicit as this before. And over on Twitch, ScarDB writes, Part of me is scared that Starmer is taking this stance because the Dark Lord Mandelson and co. have someone even worse lined up to replace him, or that they feel that their real job of killing the left is fully completed, so it doesn't matter anymore. Let's go to this question of who would replace Starmer if he were to resign. Obviously, if he resigns, that would prompt a leadership election. And these are the current odds from Sky Bet. So they have Andy Burnham as the favorite on three to one. Then you've got Angela Rayner on six to one, Wes Streeting on six to one, Rachel Reeves on 15 to two, Lisa Nandy on 10 to one, Yvette Cooper on 10 to one, Bridget Phillipson on 16 to one. And we've got Rosanna Allen Khan, Sadiq Khan, and Jess Phillips all on between 22 and 28 to one. Now, what stands out to me first here is the favorite, so the person who the bookies have as the favorite to be the next Labour leader is someone who can't actually stand to be leader. And that shows you, because he's not an MP, right? You, you can't stand to be Labour leader unless you're an MP. He's currently the mayor of Manchester. It would be, you know, be a pretty difficult sequence of events where he manages to be an MP during the police investigation without knowing 
whether or not a fine is going to be issued. I mean, it's really, really complex. But the betting markets are still judging that even though this guy can't even apply to be an MP, it's still more realistic that he becomes leader than anyone else because no one else is remotely credible as an option to be the next leader of the Labour Party. So I do think that's fairly damning. Obviously, Angela Rayner second there as well. If Keir Starmer is fined for attending that meal, which Angela Rayner also attended, she is also going to be fined. And she said she will resign as deputy leader. And it's going to be a little bit difficult to resign as deputy leader because you've been fined only then to campaign for leader. So what this says to me is that Labour is going to be I mean, this is an open race, I suppose, is, is one thing to say about it. We're streeting in at six to one. Fills me with dread. Ash, um, who would you put your money on faced with, with this list of potential Labour leaders? It shows the lack of talent in the Parliamentary Labour Party, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. There's not one name in there where you go, wow, this person is full of ideas, full of creativity. Even if politically or ideologically I don't align with them, they are bringing something fresh and something new into politics. You know, it's the kind of walking dead of the Blair Brown years, sprinkled with people who excelled themselves in student politics and the NUS and not very much else. It's not an entirely inspiring list. Um, I think you're right. Take the list with a big old pinch of salt. It's got Andy Burnham and Angela Rayner. That also makes me think that we're coming at this the wrong way. Maybe because of the nature of the Labour leadership election structure, where, of course, to get on the ballot, you have to be nominated by a certain number of MPs, and then it goes to the membership. I then wonder if it will be a relatively unknown figure, because that's the person who can you know, get the nominations from the MPs and isn't so horribly polarising the membership that they can just about sneak through. I don't know. What do you think about that as a theory? Those odds show that this will be a wide open race. I think if I were to bet on anyone now, it would probably be Lisa Nandy. And the reason I say that is because I'm not a huge fan of Lisa Nandy. I don't think she's a particularly exciting talker. You know, I don't think she's going to break new ground for the Labour Party. She's similar to Keir Starmer, she's quite dull. But the one thing in her favour is that she kind of has been proven right in terms of how she contrasted herself to Keir Starmer in the Labour leadership election. So Keir Starmer's pitch was essentially, I'm going to say I'm left-wing to get elected. Then when I get elected, I'm going to drop all of that and say I'm right-wing. And that's my genius plan that doesn't have a single flaw in it. Um, Lisa Nandy, I think she put herself forward in that leadership election as pretty right-wing. The things she was saying sounded a bit more like what Keir Starmer sounds like now. And so I think she's going to be able to say, look, I've been honest the whole time. I'm not slippery like Keir Starmer, and it's his slipperiness that brought him down. I've been upfront the whole time. Also, you know, I'm not associated with the people's vote. I might be able to win back places that Keir Starmer can't. I think the membership are a bit less het up about the EU than they were in, in 2019. So I think that could work in her favor as opposed to, to, to work against her. So I think if I was a betting person, potentially, Lisa Nandy, I know the Labour right want Wes Streeting, but I do think that potentially he is, you know, Many left-wingers have left the Labour Party. The membership is to the right of where it was in 2019, but I'm not sure it's so far to the right that they will choose Wes Streeting. And to have another, you know, mediocre white guy take over the party. My favourite thing is, you know, when you get Tories briefing to the Times of who they'd be really scared mm. of as Labour leader, and they invariably turn out to be a sack of wet socks. So it's like, oh no, don't pick Keir Starmer, we're really scared of him. 
And then Keir Starmer turns out to be shit in all the ways in which you could foresee that he was going to be shit. Slippery, evasive, lack of charisma, lack of principled opposition. Then people go, ah, ha, 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 this was our plan all along. And then the same game gets played again and again and again. So it's like, oh no, you better not pick Yvette Cooper or Wes Streeting. Please, no, have mercy on me. I'm really scared of those ones. And so the circus goes on and on again. I think that, look, I'm not a Labour member at the moment, so I literally would have no horse in that race at all. I think one of the things that the Labour membership, I hope, might have learned since the election of Keir Starmer is not to make decisions based on what they think other people's politics are. Because that was the appeal of Keir Starmer, really. It wasn't really, oh, well, I really like him. It was, well, I think other people might. Other people might like him. So it was kind of this political ventriloquism. And then, of course, you know, he's greeted by not even the harsh light of day, right? He's not subject to an ounce of the scrutiny or the smears that Corbyn was. And, and you know, now he's crumbling like, I was going to say an apple crumble, but that's a rubbish comparison. But, you know, he is utterly disintegrating under the scrutiny. And it turns out that no one really likes him. You know, he sounds like a deputy headmaster who's losing control of a school assembly. So I think that the lesson from that is go with someone you actually believe in rather than internalizing, having been disciplined and monstered by the right-wing press that you go, well, maybe this is someone who could survive it. Mm. The person actually that really stands out to me here is Rachel Reeves in fourth place. And, you know, if the membership were to pick her, it's a bit like, say, you know, Keir Starman, we thought he was a, a safe pair of hands. He sounded boring, pretty nasal, you know, didn't sound like he would, he would break the rules. But he, even he broke the rules. We need to go for someone even duller. We need to go to someone that's even more likely to send you to sleep because we need an even safer pair of hands than Keir Starmer. If he is replaced by, by her, oh, oh my God, might as well give up. What I have seen though, actually, I do think this point is reasonable. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter say, to be fair, I think there's a 50-50 chance that Keir Starmer will get found guilty of breaking the rules and they'll get a fixed penalty notice. That means that there's a 50-50 chance of there being a leadership election in the next eight weeks. If you have left Labour, there's pretty good motivation to rejoin to try and, you know, influence which of these well i mean maybe there'll be a left-wing person who gets on the ballot and it'll be worth voting for them but otherwise you can vote for the lesser of two evils <laughs> i know it's not that attractive but i just don't want west street to be leader of the labor party please let's go to our next story we covered the local elections on friday with results still coming in and now we have the final outcome it was a terrible election for the Tories, with Boris Johnson losing a total of 488 council seats. In contrast, Labour finished in positive territory with a net gain of 108 councillors. But that increase looks small when compared to the Lib Dems on 224 gains. It was also almost matched by the Greens, who gained 87 seats. And when it comes to Labour's fortunes in particular, an assessment is easiest to make when we break down the results by nation. In Wales, Labour gained 66 seats, and they were won largely at the expense of the Tories. That means more than half of Labour's gains across Britain were from Wales, and Mark Drakeford can claim that as a victory. It's, of course, notable that Drakeford, unlike Starmer, sits on the Labour Party's left. The party might also have been helped by 16- and 17-year-olds who, for the first time in Wales, were able to vote. Moving to Scotland, where 16 and 17-year-olds have been able to vote for a while, Labour again had a decent result. For the first time in 10 years, they took second place in terms of total seats. 
And overall, they gained 20 councillors. As you can see, it was also a good result for the SNP, the Lib Dems and the Greens. And it was a terrible result for the Tories. And that leaves England, where Labour's results look less than impressive. The party gained only 22 seats, a figure dwarfed by the Lib Dems and Greens, and even the left-wing Aspire party, who won Tower Hamlets from Labour. What's worse, Aspire's success in Tower Hamlets was just one development which dampened Labour's joys in the capital. On Friday morning, the party was celebrating winning free councils in London from the Tories. That was Wandsworth, Westminster and Barnet. But by the end of the weekend, they'd lost another three. Harrow and Croydon went to the Tories and Tower Hamlets went to look for Rahman's Aspire Party. That means that Labour scored net zero when it came to councils gained. Though with control of 21 councils, the party is nonetheless in a healthy position in the capital. As for councillors, Labour gained 11 more councillors than they lost in London. Not a catastrophe by any measure, but a smaller number of gains than either the Lib Dems or Aspire, who of course only stood in one borough. So those were the results in Great Britain on Sunday. This was Lisa Nandy's spin. Three years ago, I came on your show after we'd just lost our entire Labour base in every nation and region of the UK. And I think you could see that it was clear. I honestly didn't know if that break, that decisive break that people had made with us was going to be permanent. It, you know, these are parts of the country where, like Bury, like Rossendale, like parts of Cumbria, where once we were them and they were us, and that break was painful, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be permanent. I think Thursday showed the opposite, actually. I think it showed that the path back to power for Labour is steep, but it doesn't have to be long. And we're making progress in every region and nation now, in Scotland, in Wales, and in, and in England, in parts of the country where, you know, I watched, I watched us lose Labour MPs, I watched, watched us lose good people and I wondered if we'd ever repair that damage. We did start to repair that damage on Thursday. This was the turning point for us and I'm absolutely determined now that this is a start, not the end, that we now get on the front foot to convince people that we're not just an effective opposition who've won the right to be heard, but we are a genuine alternative to this awful Tory government. That was Lisa Nandy contrasting last week's election to the 2019 general election instead of the actually comparable elections of 2018. And of course, while it's great to hear she wants Labour to start showing they're an alternative to the Tories, one might ask why that's taken two and a bit years. More importantly, we might question how they actually plan to do it. They still haven't told us. Ash, I want your take on the results of last week's local elections now that we have the full picture in. So what the results really plainly tell us is that there hasn't been a huge swing towards Labour. What there has been is a drastic depression in the Conservative vote. Tory voters just didn't turn out. Smaller numbers of them, of course, switched to other parties, but the bulk of them just didn't turn out to vote Conservative. And I think that the reasons for that will vary from constituency to constituency. Of course, there are going to be an awful lot of Conservative voters who want to give the national leadership a bit of a bloody nose for what they see as you know, the unforced errors, incompetence and lying of the Partygate scandal. But if you take a council like Barnet, which really has been dumpster fire of failed outsourcing of council services from Capita, you could see that the writing was on the wall for the Conservative council there for quite some time. You had the growing Labour vote and you also, I think, had a lot of people being really pissed off for very good reasons about the way in which their local government was being run. 
I think there's another thing to point out about the success of Aspire in Tower Hamlets. One is that the success can be put down to a particular kind of community organizing through the fact that there is a very, very strong and numerous Bangladeshi community there that Lufthansa Rahman is very close to, able to organize with. And two, a lot of the time in East London, the Labour Party has distinguished itself through utter disdain for the Bangladeshi community. In the leaked report that we covered at Navarra Media, one of the things that was revealed was that the MP for Poplar at the time, Jim Fitzpatrick, I think it was, referred to a Bengali wedding in his own constituency as an Islamist plot. Now, if you tell a community of people, we think you're scum and we think you're all crooks and we think you're all backwards, and not only that, being seen to be associated with you puts off our other voters, well, obviously they'll start to go elsewhere and there will be another party, there will be other candidates who are able to organise on a local level in order to pick up those voters who've been neglected for a really long time. And this is, I think, my advice for a lot of people who consider themselves leftists or progressives. Keir Starmer doesn't care if you had to hold your nose to vote Labour, right? The Labour leadership do not care if you had to hold your nose to vote Labour. The only way they start caring about you is if you don't vote for them, if you stay at home or if you vote for someone else. That's the reason why I voted Green, by the way. I voted Green for the first time since 2015 because I just thought I don't want anyone to interpret my vote as an endorsement. And I think there are actually a lot of people who did the same thing, Tal Hamlets, of course, being one, but also other constituencies where you saw a swing to the Green Party. It's because you don't want to be taken for mugs anymore. And I think good on the Aspire Party because hopefully that puts the frighteners on Labour and they can see that you don't win back the red wall by abandoning your diverse metropolitan constituencies. You have to find a way to represent both. Next story. Last week's elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly were historic. That's because for the first time ever, the party with the largest share of votes and the largest number of seats is one in favour of Irish unification. Sinn Féin came first, both in terms of votes and seats, with 29% of the popular vote and 27 of the 90 seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly. The DUP fell back to 25 seats, that's three down on their 2017 result, and the Alliance Party won 17, up from eight last time. As those results came in, the BBC's Lewis Goodall explained their significance in this clip, which has since gone viral. Sinn Féin, a nationalist party, has topped the poll. That has never happened before in the 101-year history of Northern Ireland's existence. Northern Ireland was literally designed, its borders were designed so that that wouldn't happen, so that there would be an inbuilt unionist majority. And indeed, if you top up the unionist parties, they're still on top. If you put the DUP together and you put the UUP together and you put the TUV uh, together, a relatively new party, they still have a plurality of the votes. But the fact that you have a nationalist party coming top really does transform the political landscape in Northern Ireland, not least because, theoretically, if there is going to be an executive, Sinn Féin will have the right to nominate a first minister. Now, to an untrained ear, that explanation might have sounded fairly anodyne. But it got 1.4 million views and over a thousand quote tweets. One of those was from Sinn Féin MP Chris Hazard. He tweeted, 
BBC finally acknowledging that the partition of Ireland and the subsequent creation of the northern state was an imperialist instrument that relied upon the subjugation of the rights of citizens. Journalist Brian Whelan tweeted this, Wow, you're not supposed to say it, BBC acknowledging gerrymandering. The specific quote that provoked comment in the clip was Goodall saying, Northern Ireland was literally designed, its borders were designed, so that a nationalist majority wouldn't happen. That's a reference to the partition of Ireland in 1920. Earlier today, I spoke to Dan Finn, Jacobin Features editor and an expert on Northern Irish history and politics. And I asked him why Goodall's comments were so notable. Well, that comment by Lewis Goodall is unquestionably true and accurate, and it's not something that would be disputed by any historian who's looked at the way that the partition settlements came about at the beginning of the 1920s. There was no dispute at the time about that, and it was something that was freely stated and publicly stated by unionist political leaders that what they had sought from the negotiations and the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the aftermath of that was the largest possible geographical area that would still have a rock-solid Protestant and Unionist majority. There was never any dispute about that. And not only was the external structure of Northern Ireland, so to speak, the way the line was drawn on the map, designed to have a permanent inbuilt Unionist majority, but for the next 50 years up until the early 1970s, the internal structure of government as well through the regional parliament was also designed to secure majority rule. So in a sense, what Lewis Goodall was saying there is not any revelation. It will be accepted by any historian, any scholar who has looked at the events of a century ago, including people who believe that partition was justified or that partition was inevitable or that it was the best of a bad deal in, in some shape or form. So I would say what is significant about it, especially in the current context, is that it is reminding people of the fact that the way Northern Ireland was created and constituted in the first place a century ago, it wasn't some kind of natural or organic process. It didn't stem inevitably and ineluctably from history. It was a choice that was made by political leaders and political leadership teams. The reaction on, on Twitter has suggested that this sort of inbuilt by design um, unionist majorities is somehow sinister. I'm not saying that's not the case, but it does, I think, need some expansion because one might assume that whenever you have partition, the border will naturally fall so that on one side of the border, you have a majority of, of one ethnicity or one religious group. and On the other side, you have a majority of the other ethnic or, or religious group. The partition of India would be an example here. So it was by design that, that Pakistan had a, had a Muslim majority and that India had a Hindu majority. It was because the regions which had a majority of Hindus went to India. The regions that had a majority of, of Muslims went to, to Pakistan. Is that what's happened here or, or is that sort of a bad analogy to, to, to compare what happened in Ireland to, to the partition of India? There was no sense on the part of the British political class back then that there was a general right to self-determination. And that did certainly influence the way that Northern Ireland was set up, because even if you do accept the argument in principle that the Unionists in the Northeast had a right to decide that they should not be part of an independent Irish state, the way that the border was actually drawn meant that there was a nationalist minority inside what became Northern Ireland that was proportionately larger than would have been the Unionist minority across the whole of the island. So 
in the name of upholding the right of one people to self-determination, another section of the population was denied their right to self-determination. And that became the essence of the problem in Northern Ireland, that if Northern Ireland had been homogeneously Protestant and Unionist, if it had been 75, 80 or 90% Protestant and Unionist, there really would have been no effective challenge to partition over the last century. People in the South might have railed against it and regretted it and aspired to unity, but there would have been no challenge. But because there was this large nationalist minority, which at the time partition was about a third of the population as a whole, they were a permanent challenge to the existence of the state. And for a long time, the polarization between unionists and nationalists, it prevented any kind of development of normal left-right or class politics. It eventually gave rise to the conflicts of the 1970s, 80s and 90s. And since the late 90s, it has caused the British government and the Irish government as a partner in, in the negotiations to set up a very unusual, almost unique set of power-sharing institutions, which, going back to that comment by Lewis Goodall, while the internal structures of Northern Ireland between the 1920s and the 1970s were explicitly designed to perpetuate majority rule since 1998, they have been equally explicitly designed to prevent majority rule. So that's one reason, for example, why, in, in spite of the fact that you now have a Sinn Féin party, which is the largest party and which is entitled to nominate uh, their leader for the position of first minister, that doesn't have the same kind of dramatic implications that it might have had in the 1960s if a nationalist politician was to become the prime minister of the administration at Stormont, because you will still have a deputy first minister, which the DUP will be entitled to nominate, and which has all of the same powers as the position of first minister. It's just the symbolism of first minister versus deputy first minister. They could equally be described as co-ministers. And that may have been one reason why unionist voters resisted the appeal of the DUP in the final weeks of the campaign to, to rally behind them uh, as a way of stopping Sinn Féin from becoming the largest party, because they would have recognised that while it carries a big symbolic weight of importance, it's not going to have the sort of apocalyptic consequences that the DUP were trying to invoke during their campaign. That was Daniel Finn, who ended by explaining how the constitutional setup in Northern Ireland will limit Sinn Féin's power. And that limitation will be most dramatically demonstrated if the party's leader in the North, Michelle O'Neill, is blocked from taking the position of First Minister. That power is in the hands of the DUP, who've indicated they'll block any formation of a government without changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's in this context that Michelle O'Neill said this earlier today. And my message is clear. As Democrats, the DUP, but also the British government, must accept the, and respect the democratic outcome of this election. Brinkmanship will not be tolerated where the north of Ireland becomes collateral damage in a game of chicken with the European Commission. The responsibility for finding solutions to the protocol to make its smooth implementation lie with Boris Johnson and the EU. But make no mistake, we and our business community here will not be held to ransom. That was a pretty powerful intervention by Michelle O'Neill. And this will be an, an ongoing story. It's, it's another instance of the Tories' approach to Brexit being incredibly irresponsible when it comes to Northern Irish politics. The DUP are saying they will not form a government until the Northern Ireland Protocol is gone. The government are saying we want the, the Northern Ireland Protocol gone, but obviously the government agreed the Northern Ireland Protocol with the EU, so they're not in any mood to change it. So it's going to be an ongoing story, which we will be covering as it develops. Next story. 
If the local elections showed anything, it's that the public is furious with the government over its handling of the cost of living crisis. And they are right to be. Instead of helping people, they've raised taxes. Instead of lowering energy bills, they've offered tiny loans, only adding to people's bills next year. And instead of increasing benefits, they've slashed them. That's both by cutting universal credit by £1,000 per year and then by failing to increase benefits in line with inflation, which, according to the Bank of England, could hit 10% by the end of the year. And now ever more evidence is emerging that the cost of living crisis should in fact be considered a cost of living emergency. A survey carried out by the Food Foundation has found that more than 2 million adults in the UK have gone a day or more without eating in April. They also found that 7.3 million adults as well as 2.6 million children have been rendered food insecure since January. That means that one in seven adults in the UK have limited access to food due to lack of money or other resources. It means skipping meals, lowering the nutritional quality of your food and going hungry. That's a rise of 57% in the number of adults in food insecurity. And it happened in just three months. In January, only 4.7 million adults were food insecure, too many already, and 13.8% of households experienced food insecurity in April. It's the highest it's been since the first two weeks of lockdown. But 4.6% of households have, even worse, gone at least one whole day without eating food in April. That's more than we're going hungry in the height of lockdown in July 2020. And people are getting really desperate. The London Fire Brigade has issued this warning. As rising energy bills hit UK homes, we've issued an urgent warning to those looking to cut costs. This follows a fire in New Malden caused by an open fire used in replace of central heating. Firefighters are concerned the blaze could be the first of many. A person who lives in this house was apparently trying to keep warm by burning timber in his living room. And it could get worse. The Bank of England has predicted that the energy price cap will go up to £2,800 in October. That's an increase of £829 on the new cap that came in this April, which now stands at £1,971. And it's an even bigger increase than the one we've just felt. But while there are no solutions coming from the government, decent proposals are coming from more unexpected quarters. Speaking to the BBC, this is Scottish power boss Keith Anderson. For customers, for people out there, yeah, what we're suggesting is £1,000 off the bill in October directed to those people who need it the most and who are suffering the worst. Take that £1,000 off the bill and the cost of it and the repayment of it can be dealt with over a 10-year period. And that can be dealt with either by spreading it across future bills of all customers or by the government also putting funding and financing into it. Um, And that's required primarily, number one, to help people. Number two, it will help with the future debt levels, which is another cost that would end up going back to customers. And then, yes, absolutely, it would also help the companies uh, in the sector to make sure that actually we know we'll get the money back at some point in time. Happy to delay that and to spread it, but companies need to know that they'll end up getting the money back at some point in time, given the losses that have been suffered. So we alone as a company lost £260 million last year. So this is hurting companies as well. It's really coming to something when heads of industry are going on TV practically begging the government to help out and offering them free ideas. 
In, in case you're wondering, I know we talk a lot about you know energy companies having massive windfall profits, and that why well, that's why they should have a windfall tax. Obviously, that guy saying that his company has made losses. That's because there's a distinction between the people who produce or extract the oil and gas. They're getting huge windfall profits because the price of the raw materials which they sell has gone up. It is the energy companies who have to buy the oil and gas from the likes of Shell and BP. They're actually struggling because their costs have gone up. That's why we saw a couple of months ago all of those energy companies go bust. Just a, a distinction I thought might be helpful there. Ash, we've talked a lot about the cost of living crisis while you've been away. Can I get your comments? What do you make of the, the situation that we're currently seeing across Britain? Where do you think it could go next? Unfortunately, we really are in the foothills of the cost of living emergency because in October, energy prices are going to go up again you are going to have the impact of sluggish growth, if not outright recession, as the Bank of England warned last week. And you've got some predictions that inflation is going to go up by even 10%. And I think that might even be a conservative estimate. And of course, inflation hits people on the lowest incomes the hardest. So we are in the foothills of this crisis. And if you look at how austerity impacted people, where you had a context of benefits being slashed, difficult to access, uh, in a context where people's pay packets were, in real terms, stagnant or falling, people died. People died. People died when they were waiting for their universal credit to come through. They died when they were declared fit to work by the DWP. They died in unheated homes of starvation. There was a tragic case of a gentleman who, when he eventually passed away, was weighed less than most children. And unless the government does something drastic, that is the kind of human cost we will be looking at, as well as the more quotidian, shall we say, privations and indignities of a cost of living emergency. So people wearing multiple jumpers, getting into bed early, having to spend the day on public transport or in the library because they can't afford to heat their own home. People who are having to make a choice between heating and eating or feeding themselves or their children. All of that is going to become even more prevalent and even more normalized because of government inaction. Now, what the government can do is twofold in addressing a cost of living crisis. It can increase the amount of money which people have in their pockets by lifting the minimum wage, by increasing the amount provided through the benefit system, or, and or shall I say, it can control prices. Now, the government really has decided to do neither of those things. You have that £150 loan, which has to come out of your council tax anyway. It's going to have to come out of your council tax when we are much deeper into this crisis than we are already. So it makes literally no economic sense. And you're going to end up in a context where energy companies like Scottish Power, and this is what he's worried about, are going to be sending out bills to people that they simply cannot afford to pay. And that is the situation we're looking at. Now, obviously, there is no alternative to taxpayer money being used to insulate houses from some of those bills. You know, whether that's putting more money through this, you know, I think dreadful loan system that Rishi Sunak has devised, or whether it's bailouts for energy companies. Now, I think both of those things are deeply flawed because, as, 
as you pointed out, Michael, the reason why we're in this situation is because so much of our energy infrastructure is in the hands of deregulated private corporations. We're on the hook to fossil fuel giants who are enjoying record windfall profits. You know, oil and gas instructors are enjoying record windfall profits. And actually, the thing that the government could do and the thing Labour should be pushing for isn't tinkering around the edges, thinking about how do you knock off 5%, 10%, 20% even of people's energy bills. You need to say, look, taxpayer money is going into uh, insulating people from the impact of rising energy bills. We need to nationalize the big six, nationalize the big six, put the government in control of setting the prices of energy and make them public assets, public utilities. And I think that does two things. One is, as I mentioned, puts the government in position of more control over what bills are going out to people. And secondly, also what it does is that it gets the government in a much better position when it comes to a green transition. Because if we had taken action, and this isn't just on the Conservatives, of course, although David Cameron did do his bonfire of the green crap, this is also on the Labour Party. If we had had a green transition earlier, so that would have mean that would mean retrofitting houses to insulate them properly, to replace old gas central heating, uh, to have more offshore wind, onshore wind, solar power. If we had done all those things when we knew, when we first became aware that these were urgent policy priorities, British households would not be suffering because of energy price increases the way that they are now. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you intimated towards it there, but it's only going to get worse. Like the, the real crunch, I mean, especially when it comes to heating, is obviously going to be when next winter kicks in, prices are going to be even higher and people are going to have to face a whole a whole winter ahead of them with, with, with prices at that level. And we haven't seen any indication whatsoever that this government has any intention of dealing with that in an adequate way. And it's pretty terrifying, actually. And I will end on this. Nick Hook with a fiver. Thank you very much. Of course, Barnaby was a grand sub, but so happy to have Ash, trusted royal correspondent, Sarkar, back to Brighton on Mondays again. I couldn't echo that more, Ash. It is an absolute pleasure to have you back as my, my regular Monday co-host. I am so glad to be back. And I would like to say that I was watching Tiski while Barnaby was filling in, and I thought he was spectacular. He had real fire, real gumption. I think that he manages to articulate himself with a devastating moral clarity. And the camera loves him. What can I say? So I was scared that you were going to permanently replace me, Michael. Can't lie. I'm starting to get spooked. Well, the new plan is that maybe I'm one day going to go on some holidays and he can sit in the chair even when I'm not ill. So that'll be a happier turn of events. We'll, we'll have a long-term solution coming up. Thank you, Ash. Thank you all for joining us this evening. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.